44th Ward Alderman Tom Tunney won't run for mayor. His decision coming just hours after U.S. Representative Jesus Chuy Garcia entered the crowded race to unseat incumbent Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot. And an internal memo obtained by Cranes reveals the Lightfoot campaign's plan of attack for opponents. And on top of the Chicago mayoral race, I'll also talk with Cranes political columnist Greg Hines for his post-election analysis of the recent gubernatorial race as well as races down ballot. Let's just say I'm glad I'm not in the polling business uh, because once again, the pollsters have a little bit of egg on their, on their face. Um, uh, you know, the whole herd was, was saying, gee, golly, there's going to be a, this big red wave. Well, it didn't turn out that way. I'm Amy Guth, and this is Crane's Daily Gist for Monday, November 14th. At Wintrust Community Banks, you're more than just another account number. No matter your stage of life, Wintrust's dependable bankers are as dedicated to your financial success as you are. After three decades of serving communities across Chicagoland, Wintrust has built its reputation on exceptional customer satisfaction and a strong local presence. That's why Wintrust is proud to be ranked number one in customer satisfaction in retail banking in Illinois by J.D. Power. Visit Wintrust.com slash J.D. Power to learn more about Wintrust's award-winning banking experience. Members FDIC. For J.D. Power 2022 award information, visit J.D power.com slash awards. I spoke with Crane's political columnist Greg Hines on Wednesday. Here's his day after perspective of Tuesday night's election. What struck me is this is going to be a difficult year for Democrats, given the state of the economy, given that it's a, a non-presidential year and usually the party in power gets punished a little bit at the, at the ballot box. That didn't happen here. This was a great year for Democrats at almost every level in this state. Well, we're going to talk a lot about why, but there's two reasons that uh, come out at the top. One is that uh, Pritzker made a bet, a gamble, back in the spring, where he spent a lot of money to, in effect, pick his chosen opponent. He didn't want to run against the mayor of Aurora, Richard Urban, who's kind of a moderate. He chose instead to uh, effectively help Darren Bailey, who's a quite conservative senator from downstate, who I thought put together a pretty good campaign, but it's clearly way to the right on kind of hot button social issues that, uh, uh, that affect a lot of voters. That I think dovetailed with the phenomenon behind the scenes, which is the impact of the Supreme Court decision to overturn Roe v. Wade. That incredibly mobilized uh, uh, lots of uh, uh, women's groups, uh, not just women, men, people who support abortion rights, and they turned out. And that was most visible, I think, in DuPage County. I refer to it as the, the buckle on the uh, Republican-controlled suburban belt around Chicago. Uh, it was the center of power of the Republican Party in the state. Well, guess what? DePage County now has not only a Democratic county clerk, it has a Democrat chairman-elect of the, of the county board. Uh, I believe the Democrats may have had a chance to review the totals in detail. The Democrats also may have taken the majority of the county board to go with their new chairman. The vote there determined, uh, I think, uh, in large part, who, who uh, controlled the Illinois Supreme Court. It was key to Sean Casson being reelected as congressman, uh, and it cost uh, Illinois Republicans at the state house a few seats, which cost Jim Durkin, the Republican leader of the house, his job. He announced he's not going to try to run it again. Didn't meet the, uh, the goals that I had placed for myself. And uh, in this business, um, 
and you're judged on how many seats you win. The party needs to hit the reset button and you need to realize what happened again on Tuesday that we cannot allow the far right fringe to control the party. What, what do you think? What was the biggest surprise of the night? Probably the uh, the extent of Pritzker's victory. Even his own people were saying beforehand that, you know, somewhere in the high single digits, and there were some nervous Democrats who were saying four or five points. It turns out to have been, it's about 11 and a half at the moment, but uh, most of the mail ballots that are still out there are from Chicago and Cook County, and that will drive the Democratic numbers back up again. That surprised me. And I'm a little surprised, too, that the, the workers' rights amendment to the state constitution is right in the ballots. I mean, 50-50, probably a slight advantage to it at this point, but it depends whose numbers you believe. Yeah, that's exactly right. And then also the uh, property tax issue for Cook County Forest Preserve District, that was kind of also up for grabs. You know, it was, and we instinctively think that people don't like property taxes, uh, and as a general rule, they don't. But I'm convinced that if you tell voters what they're going to get for their money, you lay it out. Yeah. Uh, you know, it doesn't, doesn't go into a vacuum, into a, a big pot of money where the mayor gets a big pay raise. But if it's going to go to nice stuff like trees and flowers, parks to take the kids out, and picnic knolls you can use in the summer, you get more support. Some of the civic groups, like the Civic Federation, the Watchdog Group supported. But it seems pretty clear that in a democratic year, that the Forest Preserve people did their homework and convinced enough voters that they turned around what the long time was a terribly mismanaged agency and that they're going to spend it wisely and buy more park space. Who, you know, who's opposed to more parks? Who hates trees? What kind of jerk hates trees, right? <laughs> oh, there's, there, there, there's a few. You might go <laughs> on the internet and say, I hate trees. You'll probably get some, some light. I'll, I'll find a hater. So let's talk about the state Supreme Court. Was that expected, that outcome, or, or, or was that, uh, did that come as a surprise? I don't think it was a surprise, but it was a, a clearly fought battle. The, the backdrop here is that uh, is that the Democrats control every statewide constitutional office. They have stronger than ever supermajorities in the House and the Senate. If the Republicans were getting, in any way going to get back in the game, they had to pick up the Supreme Court seat. And as it turns out, because they just redistributed yeah. the court, there were two seats that were up exclusively in the suburbs and rural areas, which would seem to provide some opportunities. I always thought that uh, the one up north with Liz Rochard was probably going to go Democratic because of the, the way the numbers behind the, the district. Uh, a little more surprising is the other one where, where Mary Kay O'Brien won and beat a, a Republican incumbent. I think that's a, that's a tenor of the year when you do well at the top of the ticket and the Democratic ticket was led not only by Pritzker, but by Senator Duckworth, who's even better. It kind of tends to trickle down. It pulls out voters who just got an instinct of it go down the list even though you can't cast a straight party ballot anymore um and i think that's that's what it was the different year would have gone differently what about on the on the national level what had your attention during uh, election night let's just say i'm glad i'm not in the polling business uh because once again the pollsters have a little bit of egg on their, on their face um uh the, the whole herd was was saying gee golly there's going to be a, this big red wave well, it didn't turn out that way. The Republicans could still get control of the Senate. That is still not quite clear as we talk. It depends on whether the Democrats can pick up either Arizona or Nevada, which are still uncertain, and whether Raphael Warnock will hang on to the seat in Georgia, which is now going to a runoff. But the Republican margin in the House looks like they're going to take it. But it's going to be very tight, which is going to be all kinds of problems because, uh, as John Boehner found out, 
hurting House Republicans and putting together moderates and business folks with the with the, the people on the far right you know, and the mega people, it's almost impossible. It makes hurting cats look easy. The Democrats held on to all of their governorships, uh, even though they were really pressed in, in not only New York, but uh, uh, Wisconsin, Michigan. Wisconsin and Michigan are definitely swing states. Pennsylvania is a swing state. It's just reading what we got online. But not only did Whitmer win in, in Michigan, but the Democrats took control of both the House and the Senate in that state, and apparently some other victors. That, that was significant because it, it defies predictions and it defies history. Political history in this country is that the party that has the White House almost solidly loses in, in the off, first off-year election. It didn't happen. So. Also, you know, I think state constitutional questions were, were really something that I was keeping an eye on during the election as, as uh, voters were really kind of making some decisions around abortion and their abortion access in their state constitutions, which I thought was really interesting to watch. I think that abortion question is really significant uh, in, in what comes out, kind of like the uh, dog that, that, that caught the car. Republicans got their way on abortion. Oh, my goodness. All of a sudden had to explain it to people and it outraged big parts of the electorate, despite all the coverage uh, in reporting that, golly gee, uh, this election is about the inflation and the terrible economy and, and everything else. Exit polls showed that while the economy was the top uh, factor on people's minds, something like 31%, abortion came in very close behind, uh, something like 31%, uh, 27%. That's a big determinant. I think that explains much of why things turned out the way they did. And, and you know, some some analysts, of course, I think all of us were all looking at a lot of screens on election night and listening to a lot of pundits talk. But, you know, a narrative that I feel like I kind of kept hearing and seeing was kind of uh, this idea that some states were kind of returning to roots or, you know, returning to kind of what we've come to expect about states, which I thought was kind of an, an interesting narrative. Do you, do you agree with that or, or no? I kind of do. One of the other trends I think you see nationally is that we're all kind of returning to our tribes as we get more and more polarized, uh, we're more and more divided. And blue states are blue tilting states are more blue and red states are red tilting states are more red. Ergo, what the Democrats can crow about, uh, they held on to uh, New York, uh, they expanded their position in, uh, in Michigan, they held on to the governorship in Wisconsin, they expanded their position up in Minnesota. The Republicans can correctly say, hey, uh, we beat back uh, uh, efforts to uh, to take Florida away from us. It's now no longer a swing state. Florida is the minimum a, a, a pink state, uh, maybe a deep red state. Uh, Texas, where Beta O'Rourke hoped to get cracked through another time, didn't get anywhere. Republicans uh, run that state from top to bottom. And while Michigan is more blue than it has been, Ohio is more red than it has been. Neither one of those now is probably realistically a swing state anymore. How we work together as a country when there's two countries increasingly divided uh, is, is a real question. Uh, it explains the nastiness of our politics and, and, uh, and the bitterness with which, which we uh, do things. Uh, you know, uh, And on top of that, you now have uh, almost certainly Donald Trump jumping in. Mr. Trump's style is not consensus. It's not stroking. It's uh, get in your face and scream and yell. And, uh, and, and and really let those blankety blanks on the other side know that we're going to kick or whatever. Uh, that's not exactly uh, bring the tribes together. Either. Yeah, certainly. But moving back locally, uh, as you mentioned, uh, House GOP leader Jim Durkin announced 
Wednesday morning he was not going to seek another term as the chamber's minority leader. What does that road ahead then look like? Well, they're going to have a fight and they're going to try to figure out who's in charge. Um, Jim Durkin in, in state government was was kind of the last of the uh, of the traditional Republicans who were still standing. The Trump factor went too far, and I believe that that was what interrupted part of this red wave. Uh, what we're seeing play out with him and his antics has nothing changed. Jim was best known as being John McCain's wingman in Illinois. He always represented him. He ran for the Senate. He was the quintessential suburban moderate who uh, is pretty tight on fiscal issues, but when it comes to things like abortion or uh, same-sex marriage order or uh, legalization of marijuana, it wasn't, wasn't was too absurd. Look, there's people who are going to be in denial. They're going to say that uh, Tuesday was a moral victory for Darren Bailey and for the conservative movement. They lost. We lost. He's now gone, and I'm not sure whether anybody from the moderate camp is around to really pick up the standard. Uh, uh, there's going to be a lot of pushback from the, from the right of that party. Uh, to do it. Um, I mean, it's a smaller party, so the, the, the loudest faction proportionately grows. Um, uh, we'll, we'll see what happens there. Uh, I don't think it's going to spread wider quite yet, but, the, but uh, with, with, with Trump almost certainly going to be on the ballot, uh, it is certainly going to rub things up. Yeah, yeah, I have no doubt. And so next we look ahead to the Chicago mayoral election, February 28th. Can I have a vacation? I know. <laughs> Poor Greg. <laughs> Give Greg a break. <laughs> what, uh, what are the biggest headwinds for, for Lightfoot facing re-election? Crime didn't have a lot of influence. It was outright by other issues. I mean, Dan Prof's PAC spent zillions and zillions of dollars at every level trying to frighten the jabbers out of people that, oh, my goodness, don't go out your front door. They're going to get you. Uh, And it didn't seem to work. Um, So maybe crime is overrated as an issue. Republicans have traditionally tried that. Uh, But when you're the mayor, it's a little more close to the best um, because people associate the mayor with public safety and the police chief or whatever. And clearly, uh, although Lightfoot can point to some successes in some other areas, for instance, Moody's upgraded the city's credit a couple of days ago. Uh, that hasn't happened in quite a while. Um, she's uh, made a big deal about the, uh, uh, investing money in, uh, in neighborhoods that have been deprived of capital in her uh, invest uh, Southwest program. Um, she's still got to deal with crime. Uh, if people are scared and people think that the police department isn't doing its job right, uh, the justice system isn't working, and there's a lot of people like that. That could really come back to bite her. She's got to deal with that. Number one concern. Well, lots more to discuss between now and then. But as you said, poor Greg, you need a vacation. <laughs> You've just gone through the election. I, I, I do. <laughs> you take January, then we'll revisit this in February as things rev up for sure. All right. Well, thanks so much, Greg. Always a pleasure talking with you. Thanks, Amy. Coming up, Wells Fargo, the nation's fourth largest bank, is opening a new branch next year in the One Chicago building. Its first significant retail move here since acquiring a modest franchise in 2010. We'll talk about that and more right after this. Every month, Cranes Forum goes deep to explore critical issues challenging Chicago and the region. On November 17th, we're excited to bring this editorial initiative from the page to the stage with our Forum Live event. 
We invite you to join us at the Marriott Marquis, where you'll hear different perspectives from a mix of influential leaders, both national and local. The event will kick off with a dynamic keynote conversation with Mayor Lori E. Lightfoot as we look at what lies ahead for the city that works. The opening segment will be followed by an impressive group of leading strategists diving into several important topics. Attendees will choose one of three breakout panel discussions after the opening keynote, including affordable housing, the future of behavioral health, or the state of local news and policy coverage. Learn more and secure your seat by visiting chicagobusiness.com slash forum live. This is the Crane's Daily Gist with Amy Guth. Crane's political columnist Greg Hines reported that an internal memo from Lightfoot consultant Valerie Martin to members of her finance committee and obtained by Crane's provides a few hints about what the Lightfoot campaign thinks of its chances and those running for mayor against her. U.S. Representative Jesus Chuy Garcia, who announced his mayoral run in recent days, and Alderman Tom Tunney of the 44th Ward, who's decided not to run, have both, quote, missed their prime window to build formidable mayoral campaigns, the memo says. Also saying, quote, the biggest financial backers from Garcia's previous mayoral run have already endorsed others in the race. That, Hines noted, would be the Chicago Teachers Union and SEIU locals covering health care and government workers, both of which are backing Cook County Commissioner Brandon Johnson. Hines reported that the memo also mentions Republicans in the race, businessperson Willie Wilson and former schools chief Paul Vallis, saying, quote, In the weeks ahead, we will continue to demonstrate how these two Republicans will be detrimental to Chicago. The memo also mentions the likely theme of upcoming ads from the Lightfoot campaign, reading, quote, her ambitious agenda of expanding opportunities and inclusive economic growth across Chicago. She's led the city through the unprecedented challenges of a global pandemic and more with tough, fair leadership. And we plan to start aggressively communicating that in the days to come. Find more on the mayoral race from Crane's political columnist Greg Hines, as well as from Crane's government reporter Justin Lawrence at chicagobusiness.com. Chicago-based United Airlines told pilots it'll move forward a planned 5% pay hike to December in what it described as a show of good faith, just days after the aviators rejected a proposed contract. Citing a letter sent Thursday by Brian Quigley, United's senior vice president for flight operations, Bloomberg reported that the carrier decided to accelerate the raise based on its financial results through September and outlook for the rest of 2022. Pilots weren't scheduled to receive a pay bump until May under an earlier deal reached with the airline. Bloomberg also noted in reporting that United's move comes during a period of increased labor tensions as unions representing the four largest U.S. carriers try to reach new work agreements. In addition to pilots rejecting United's contract offer on November 1st, this month Delta Airlines pilots approved a strike authorization and union leaders at American Airlines voted down a proposed deal that would have increased pay 19 percent over two years. Electric truck and bus manufacturer Lion Electric reported record deliveries as its Joliet plant ramps up. Bloomberg reported shares of the company surged 11 percent after it announced the record number of deliveries in the third quarter. The company, based just northwest of Montreal, delivered 156 vehicles, nearly a fourfold increase over the same period last year. The company recently started production of electric buses in a new facility in Joliet, and a battery manufacturing plant will open in December, also in Canada. 
Total estimated capacity may eventually go as high as 22,500 vehicles per year, but Bloomberg noted in reporting that the company must speed up production if it's going to capitalize on an order book of 2,408 vehicles, valued at $575 million. Wells Fargo is opening its first ever new branch in the Chicago market with a location in the retail portion of the One Chicago Residential Tower in River North. Crane's Steve Daniels reported that the nation's fourth largest bank, based in San Francisco, has done little on a retail basis locally since acquiring a modest footprint here in 2010 as part of a takeover. Wells Fargo has just seven full-service area locations and no such branches in Chicago itself. Daniels noted that the company's Chicago focus has been overwhelmingly on commercial banking and wealth management. Daniels also noted in reporting that nationally, Wells Fargo has been one of the most aggressive of the big banks in closing branches, not opening them. The bank has operated under a regulatory and reputational cloud for the past six years and has paid billions of dollars in fines and settlements tied to a years-long record of opening accounts without customer knowledge or agreement in order to meet overly ambitious sales goals. The bank is still operating under a Federal Reserve order prohibiting it from growing its assets above $1.95 trillion, which was its size in 2018. Most of the bank's $9.3 billion in local deposits are from commercial customers and are based downtown. Apart from those accounts, there was $1.8 billion in deposits located in Wells Fargo's suburban branches that was up modestly from $1.5 billion four years prior. That's Crane's Daily Gist for now. Check in on our continuous news feed at chicagobusiness.com. Thanks so much to today's guest, Crane's political columnist, Greg Hines. You can follow all of our conversations on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to get your audio on demand. Don't forget to subscribe and please rate and review Crane's Daily Gist. Our show is produced by Todd Manley at Earsight Studios. I'm Amy Guth. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll meet you right back here next time.